For this episode, we've partnered with Needed, the leading women's health supplement brand recommended by nutritionally trained practitioners. Did you know that 95% of women who take prenatals are still nutrient deficient? Most prenatals are designed to meet bare minimum needs, not to optimally nourish you. We love that Needed's products are based on the latest clinical research and that they focus on care before, during, and after pregnancy. Get optimal nutrition and save 20% off your first month at thisisneeded.com with code FDU. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am here with my stunning, smart, sassy co-host, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey, guys. How are y'all doing? doing? Good. Doing great. So, so Abby, I understand that your affiliation with us, or at least your business card, your FDU business card, helped you out sometime recently. Yeah. So this summer, we were traveling in Scotland. And so um, we were in the western, northwestern part of Scotland around the Scottish Highlands. And it's really, it's really remote. It's beautiful, beautiful country and very remote. A lot of, a lot of one lane and two lane roads and just not a lot of people around. And so we were coming south and we were heading back to Edinburgh and that's where we flew out of. And so we stopped to get gas. And so next to the gas station, there's this cute little store, um, that they basically, you know, obviously plaid and tartan is a big thing in Scotland. And so it was a, it was a younger woman who had started a business and she had these clothing items that were kind of unique and different, but they had plaid and tartan on them. They're really cool. And so we walked over and we were, and she was really friendly. We were talking to her. And so there was like a jacket thing that I was trying on. So I handed my purse to my husband and that was my first mistake. And so, um, so I tried on the jacket and so, you know, it didn't quite fit, but she, you know, has this mail order business. And so she gave me her car and everything. Really nice person. Her name was Claire Campbell. So shout out to Claire Campbell. Um, So she, so we got in the car and we left. And so about, and this is a two lane road and about 30, 40 minutes down the two lane road, I get this call on my phone and it was on, we like, it wasn't on the regular phone. It was on like we group or I forgot what that's called. But anyway, it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was on an app. And I'm like, should I answer this? This is really weird. So I pick up the phone and this like very animated woman was like, Abby, is this Abby? And I I said, yeah. And she goes, well, this is Claire Campbell at, at, you know, at the Thistle shop. And she goes, I I just, I knew I had to find you because I've got your purse with your passport in it. And I knew you're going to need this. (laughs) And so I was like, oh my gosh. And I hadn't even realized that my purse was gone. I was holding my phone, but my purse was long gone. And so my husband was not very thrilled about it, but I reminded him that he was the one that was holding my purse. He set my purse down in the shop and I didn't realize it. And so we turned back around and went by Donna castle again. And and anyway, she was just, she really tracked me down. And the only way she was able to find me, the only identifying thing I had in my purse was my Fertility.Sensored business card. It had my cell phone number on it. So she called through that app to get me. And I was like, Claire, you saved my whole trip because it had my passport in it. And we were going to go to the airport the next day. And it was about, because 
the roads were so tight, you know, narrow and there were two lane roads, it was about a six hour trip from where she was to Edinburgh. And so wow. it been, and I, I don't know that I even remember where I left the purse. It would have taken a lot because we were in so many different places and stopped at so many different places. So wow. I was so very grateful for her. So wow. I wanted so to send her something, but her shop? well, that's what I'm going to do. I think I'm either going to order something from a shop. I want to send something to her, but Amazon doesn't go to Scotland and it's kind of hard to figure out how to ship to her, but I do have her card with her website. So I'm going to, I think it's the thistle the thistle shop dot or thistle dot shop or whatever. But anyway, yeah, I'm gonna order something from her because she just went way above and beyond to help me out and I really appreciated it a lot. And all the Scottish yeah. people are so nice. They all were very, very friendly and helpful. So That's shout out awesome. to Scotland. It was fun. <laughs> Good story. Good story. Mm-hmm. All right. Well let's do a couple of questions before we jump into our our topic for the day. Um our first one is I had my first FET in May prior to we received retrieved 37 eggs, 25 successfully fertilized, 18 reached day five blastocysts. We tested 12 with PGTA, 11 of them came back genetically normal. Our FET in May started out as a pregnancy of unknown origin with low HCG of 27 and 39. HCG numbers did jump slightly to 125 then 369, but then found a gestational sac that measured five weeks one day when I was supposed to be six weeks, three days, confirming the miscarriage. Can you give any insight into what you think happened. I just turned 35 and we are starting our second round of IVF after Labor Day. I would love any insight as to what suggestions you have for this round to help moving forward, both physically and mentally. Thank you. Losses are always so hard. And Mm -hmm. and the first rule of losses, you did not, you did not contribute to this. This was not your fault. There was nothing you could have done one way or the other. Um, The, what people don't always remember is that pregnancy is um, very dangerous for the woman to go through. There are a ton of changes that the body has to make. And all of a sudden, instead of having, you know, the the parent be the primary responsibility, you now have both the parent and the child. And so there's a big balance between those two. And when something isn't going right, either because um, a gene isn't functioning, a piece of machinery didn't turn on the way that it should, the body is going to want to stop that as soon as possible, because that is what safest for everybody involved. And so most of the time, it is some underlying genetic abnormality where the machinery didn't work, the gene didn't turn on, the instructions weren't given properly, and it just stops everything from growing. And most of the time, we never find out what the reason is. Um, Even with all the best genetic testing that we do, it's still very limited when you think about just how much our genetic code is responsible for in terms of instructions Mm -hmm. and making things happen. And so we can, even when you know absolutely every single base pair that makes up the entire genetic code, you still don't know if it's working the way that it should because there are epigenetic changes, meaning the ways that the... the, switches are turned off and on and and all of those things uh, interplay together in very unique ways that you know we know some of them but we don't know all of them and so a lot of times it's just something didn't turn on right stop reset go back and do it again you know i think it's kind of analogous to before we did genetic testing on embryos we would look at embryos and we'd be like oh this is a beautiful embryo this has such great cells it's going to be a great embryo and then you put it in they wouldn't get pregnant you'd be like well what went wrong what could have possibly gone wrong well now we all know that at least 50% of the time, clearly it's genetically abnormal. And I think there's going to be, hopefully sooner rather than later, something that we're going to find out about the endometrium even, or even more about the genetics of the embryo. Like Carrie said, the epigenetics, what turns cells
cells on or turns um, DNA on and off that we don't know now. And we'll look back and go, gosh, that was really the dark ages. And we thought, you know, if it's 46XX, it should be just fine. You know, there's probably lots that we don't understand and, and know. I know there's lots of things we don't understand. And so that's, but that's what makes it so hard though. We feel like if it's a genetically normal embryo, it should work. And unfortunately, it just, just bad luck sometimes. It just doesn't work. Yeah, I would say, you know, if you were in a situation where you only had one or two normal embryos, uh, I would normally recommend some testing. But I think considering you have quite a few, I think that it's very reasonable to just go and do your next embryo transfer because this was probably one of those, it just didn't happen. Um, For those of you who may be listening, who may be in a similar circumstance, but not have as many um, embryos in the freezer, um, you know, I Which think- is more the normal case. To have 11 normal embryos is really unusually it's, good. It's, it's, that doesn't usually it's pretty happen. It's un- pretty unusual for that to happen. So, so yes. for, for the rest of us out there, <laughs> um, the- you know, I things that I often do after a miscarriage like this, um, after I've tried transferred a chromosomally normal embryo, I'll usually look for like an acquired blood clotting condition called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Normally, I don't look for that unless we've had two miscarriages, but those rules were developed when we're talking about spontaneously conceived pregnancies, not where we know that the embryo was chromosomally normal or not. And so that's something I usually test for, um, making sure the lining of the uterus looks perfect, those types of things, making sure your thyroid, prolactin, all of those things are in check. There's, those are some of the kind of baseline things that I would do that are pretty non-invasive. Agreed. All right. One more question. Um, my husband, 32, and I, 30, are on our fourth IVF cycle. We did three rounds in 2019 and collected a total of 20 eggs, of which two made it to day five and only one was euploid, our now three-year-old son. My doctor suspects DOR, AMH of 1.2, FSH 12, AFC 14. But after some research, I also wonder if my husband's sperm DNA fragmentation could be an issue. His semen analyses have ranged from slightly low motility morphology to normal, but DNA fragmentation was not tested. I've read recent studies on short ejaculatory abstinence time and how it may improve DNA fragmentation IVF outcomes. My question is, what are your thoughts on shortening my husband's ejaculatory abstinence period prior to egg collection to see if it improves our fertilization rate and embryo viability. We have the smartest listeners. We do. Wow. They keep us on our toes, don't they? (laughs) So um, for a lot of the changes, doing, doing IVF is actually the treatment. Now with sperm fragmentation, a lot of the things that we do if we get a poor result on that is Tell, telling people to clean up their lives, which um, sounds horribly judgmental and is really just do, do all the things your doctor tells you to do that you know that they're going to tell you to do, just actually do it this time. Um, and and that is in no way judgmental when you look at my uh, refrigerator downstairs and all the things that I do not listen to. Um, but that said, avoid tobacco, nicotine, alcohol, um, you know, the super uber processed foods, eat a healthy diet, lots of fruits and vegetables, all of those things. Um, Sometimes supplementation is recommended, but keep in mind the data for supplementation. There's a lot of information out there, but true data is not as robust and strong and well-proven as we would like it to be. And so, you know, I think it's probably equally as effective for your husband to just pay attention to all of the nuances in his life. If, if you guys want to make that change. The sperm fragmentation may or may not tell you that it's normal or not normal, but um, but nobody's going to feel bad if you if you guys put in the effort to say, okay, let's try and 
pay attention to as much of that as we can. Um, it's it's not always super clear what you do with that information and how you make it better. Yeah, and there's one other thing that you may want to consider, like in trying to figure out why the embryo development wasn't so great, and that's PGTA+. So it's looking at aneuploidy, and it's a way that the geneticists are able to kind of figure out if the embryo doesn't grow very well, doesn't do very well. Is it more an egg thing or is it more a sperm thing? Because I think that's really what you're trying to figure out is, is it just bad luck or is there really some issue with the egg or the sperm that's making the changes? Traditionally, we think it's probably the egg because the egg is in your body your whole life and his sperm is produced every 72 days. But there are certain situations where it may be a sperm factor and and perhaps, you know, that might be something that will be helpful for you guys. If, say, you continue on and say, worst case scenario, his sperm just really doesn't do great and you don't have any good embryos, you might consider potentially going through IVF with your egg using donated sperm. That would be sort of the solution if you found that it was a, a problem with the sperm that couldn't be corrected. So I'm going to add a couple of things to this. So, you know, you can ask for testing for DNA fragmentation to, you know, all those things that Carrie mentioned, you need to do anyway. So whether the DNA fragmentation testing is <laughs> normal or abnormal, there are still other epigenetic modifications, which means things that happen after you were conceived that can change how your genes are expressed. So you need to, like, life needs to be clean. Like, make it as perfect as you possibly can. Um, you know, you do have an FSH of 12. You've had 20 eggs and only two of them made it to the biopsyable stage. Um, I would consider you probably a candidate for omnitrope or growth hormone. Um in my experience, I don't think growth hormone necessarily gets you more eggs, but I tend to get better quality eggs and embryos. And I've seen people who've had similar results as you have and ended up with better outcomes in, in the long term. So um, I do think you probably fall into that realm of people where you both have egg factor and sperm factor, which is actually the most common. Um, mm -hmm. And and so I, I think making sure you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's on both of those are, is going to be really important going forward. All right. So we today are going to talk about drumroll, the two-week wait. <laughs> and, and we're going to kind of touch on what are things to kind of expect? What are things you should be doing or what are some things you should not be doing? So so why do we, what what exactly is the two-week wait? Why, why do we focus on this? So it's so really the, go ahead. <laughs> the two week wait is the time frame between whatever procedure we think is going to get you pregnant occurs, whether that's an embryo transfer, an IUI, having intercourse, whatever, and the time that you get a positive test that gives you any kind of solid inkling of, yep, this worked or no, it didn't. And you can't test immediately because you need to know that the HCG hormone is rising and that it's high enough to be detectable. So it's not like you can, you know, have or have an embryo transfer, whatever, and then two days later check because it takes a little bit of time for that hormone to build up in sufficient quantities to be reliable. Or the other thing to think about is if you get a trigger shot and you that will falsely look positive. Yeah. So unfortunately, it's really disappointing when somebody calls a few days after they've ovulated and they're like, my HCG level is positive. I must be pregnant. And then we have to tell them, oh, it's probably just from your shot. So there is 
that two-week wait, you can't really test for both of those reasons. Yeah. And so when we actually are going for testing, usually it's a decently calibrated time because your clinic wants to know pretty much as soon as you do, because we're super <laughs> antsy um, as well. Uh, not as antsy as you are, but definitely anxious to know whether this worked or not. And so part of the reason why we push it out to that two-week time frame is that's usually right around the time that you'd be missing a period. And um, and so that's a, a reasonable time frame to say, okay, if something's working, levels should be high enough to show. So let's kind of break this up a little bit between IUI and IVF. So Abby, if you are doing an IUI cycle, what are some things that you should do or even should notice during this time frame? Well, one of the things you may want to consider, and this doesn't apply to everybody, but I think somewhere along the line, maybe even before this cycle, you want to make sure that you're producing adequate amounts of progesterone because normally... Um, your corpus luteum, once you re- release the egg, produces progesterone. Every now and then people have a drop off in the progesterone level. And so therefore they they need a little extra boost. And as one of the co-hosts has said before, it's like dumping water in the ocean. You can't get too much progesterone. So if you're somebody that your progesterone level kind of drops off, not a bad idea to take some additional progesterone. You can either do it via you know, an oral pill, you can do it a shot through a shot, um, you can do it through vaginal medicine, but you want to make sure that your progesterone level is adequate. And was, what was the second part of your question, Susan? So, um, well, well, we'll just kind of focus on this to begin with. So, Carrie, okay. are there other things that after an IUI during that two-week wait that you should be doing? You should be taking your prenatals. You should be taking whatever other medications your doc has prescribed. Progesterone is usually first and foremost among them, but sometimes we'll add in estrogen. Sometimes we'll add in whatever particular voodoo we believe in at the moment um, or that makes sense to. Um, you know, you should be taking care of yourself. You should be sleeping. You should be uh, moderate exercise. You know, walking is the easiest thing to do because you get credit for the exercise. It's not super rambunctious. And so you're not pushing too hard. Um, but in general, taking good care of yourself, avoiding the things that you know you should be avoiding, um, whether that's alcohol or nicotine products or whatever, drug products, marijuana, all of those things. So can you have sex during your two-week wait after an IUI? Yes. Yes. Are there any strings attached to that sex? No. No. (laughs) No. So you don't have to have... The horse is already out of the barn at that point, so there's no strings attached. Positions don't matter. Frequency doesn't matter one way or the other. This is the first time in however long you get to do it because you want to. So by all means, have a lovely time. Exactly. Exactly. What are what are some things that you should watch for or maybe not read too much into during that time frame for an IUI. So if you're feeling nauseated or you're feeling bloated or you know honestly in reality if you're if once you get pregnancy nausea that's pretty a little bit further on down the pike. That's not in that two-week window. So if you're nauseated or you feel breast, I mean, you have some breast tenderness, that can all be linked to, you know, hormonal changes that you have at that point. So you really, really can't feel pregnancy at that point. You have to wait a little bit longer to really get the symptoms of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Pinions and cervical mucus and discharge, not necessarily reliable one way or the mm-hmm. other. Um 
you know, there we have patients who come in who absolutely swear by XYZ changed. I felt XYZ different. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're not. And it ends up being kind of 50 50. Um, <laughs> and, and we also have people who have absolutely no changes and, and they're solidly pregnant. And so while a lot of these things are stereotypes of, oh, when you get pregnant, you are going to feel nauseated, bloated, heartburn, whatever, um, stereotypes are not all true. And so take it with a grain of salt in both directions. And so honestly, my favorite technique during the two-week wait is avoidance, pure and simple. Like to the extent that you can run it out of your head and think about everything else in the free world, um, I think distraction is really helpful because this process is a lot of hurry up and wait. It's do this, do this, do this, now wait. Do this, do this, do this, now wait. And that happens all the way through both both IUIs, IVF, you know, trying at home. And so um, knowing what your good distraction techniques are, are key in this time frame. One of the things, sometimes patients will say, oh, I just know I'm pregnant because I, I had a little spotting. I had some implantation bleeding. You know, there are people that have implantation bleeding, but it's not something we really hang our hat on. So, you know, again, you know, you to, unfortunately, you just have to wait till the pregnancy test to really know for sure what's going on. When we're talking about people who have IVF, I do think that those people tend to have more of some of the side effects from estrogen and progesterone because they've been on them longer and their hormone levels are higher than, higher, what, we, yeah. than yeah. what we get when we're doing IUIs. And so, especially if you're doing like a frozen embryo transfer and you've been on estrogen, you're doing, you know, progesterone, we're, we're flooding your body with hormones. And so, you know, again, not reading too much into those symptoms, but also not reading too much into not having symptoms. And right. if you go from having mm -hmm. symptoms to not having symptoms, don't read into that either. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Like yeah. particularly that early, yeah. Enjoy your good days, and even if you've been pregnant before, you know people are like, "Oh, in my last pregnancy, blank happened." I, I mean, I can say personally, my first pregnancy was easy. My second pregnancy, I thought I was going to die, and my third pregnancy was somewhere in the middle. Like I, I'm, they're all different, yeah. When my husband and I had our discussion about having our third child, it actually had nothing to do with actually, you know, creating another human being. It all. <laughs> had to do with you really want to be pregnant again and go through that <laughs> after the last time you did this. I mean, because yeah. it was crazy. I mean, I was I was literally crawling on the floor. It was terrible. That sounds miserable. And and I can completely envision you and your husband having that conversation of him going like, really? You, we're really going to do this again? Are you sure? And I'm like, means to an end. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm with Carrie though. Those two weeks, I think the best thing that you can do, and you know, I'm traditionally, I'm kind of a warrior, but I, and so I tell people if they're big time people that worry a bunch, it's one of those things, you know, you can't control it at that point. So just give up on control and just try to enjoy those two weeks and do things that you wouldn't have done in the other two weeks or, you know, all the other time that you're trying when you're trying to get pregnant, just enjoy yourself and do the things that you enjoy and be kind to yourself. I think, you know, oftentimes you're kind to your spouse and you're kind to your friend, but you're not kind to yourself and give yourself a break and give yourself some downtime and just do whatever makes you happy. That's what you need to focus on in that two weeks to treat your mental and your physical health. Absolutely. I, I think that that is so important. I think it's a good time to 
be intentional about treating yourself and being kind to yourself and really kind of nourishing this 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 time that that is hopefully going to be you know the beginning of of the rest of your life you know and i think having yourself in a good mental place is exceptionally important um and so whatever your releases that helps you get there um I mean, I I very much think it's so much easier to get some, someone pregnant and get that positive pregnancy test than someone who believes that it's going to happen. I mean, I, I've had patients who have had such negativity, and I I know it like feeds into the system, and it's got to it, it just it just doesn't work as well. Yeah, I think stress and anxiety, you know, physiologically increase your cortisol levels, increase your epinephrine levels, your adrenaline levels, and those are probably none of those things are probably good for you know implantation. And so I think anything that you can do to get yourself happier and calmer, I think is going to be good overall for everything, including implantation. Exactly. Exactly. Planning the things that you know will make you happy. (laughs) That's the one time that the OCD nature of our patients, super helpful. Because if you can have a plan like, okay, every day, this is what I'm going to do that brings me joy today. (laughs) Helps. Have a joyful thing each day. Yeah. Even if it's 10, 15 minutes, do do something that brings you joy. And that will help bring you joy in the end. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes. And also 10, 15 minutes of joy includes, you know, Marijuana, uh, marijuana, or heroin, or any of those things. Yeah, no, don't do that. Probably not those things. things. Those are probably not the good. (laughs) No no psychedelic joy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Any other words of advice for the two week wait? Um, Stay moving. We didn't really talk about that a whole lot. Typically, what a lot of us will tell you is nothing super major in terms of activity, exercise, um, oftentimes sex, depending on what type type of treatment you're having. A lot of times, the reasons we say that are not necessarily because we think that it will cause damage, but more because that's the highest risk time for something negative to happen. And we don't want you to think that you caused it because I can think of nothing more damaging for someone's sex life than to have sex and the next day have a miscarriage where the two had absolutely nothing to do with each other. But just because of the time frame and how closely they were related, people think, oh my God, I caused this. Um, mm-hmm. And so walking is super helpful, you know, staying moving, all of those things, please do. Um, also bumps up your endorphins when you walk and when you exercise. So that's a good mm-hmm. thing. And so, you know, uh, if you have a question, ask ask your doc specifically. Like they'll give you generally the, the overall rundown. But um, if there's something you know you like to do and you're worried about it all and you're thinking like, oh my God, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. Ask them first because we're going to react very differently to someone who likes to paint with watercolors than someone who wants to paint with heavy duty oils and acrylics and, and all of those things where they're big toxic smells. Um, And so, you know, if you're ever worried, just ask. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. And to our audience, thank you for listening and to be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in Apple Podcasts and would love to hear from you. I can't talk today. (laughs) We are also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So make sure to follow and subscribe to us to stay updated on all things infertility. You can also visit us on fertility.suncensored.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. Um, or even leave us episode ideas. We love love to hear from you guys. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, well, we will talk to you soon. Tune in next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.